Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me for the ninth episode of my new podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is, do you want to be an ostrich? With me from the great city of Vancouver is Caroline Stokes, the author of Elephants Before Unicorns, Emotionally Intelligent HR Strategies to Save Your Company. Carolyn is the CEO of Forward and the podcast host of the Emotionally Intelligent Recruiter. Carolyn is an award-winning leadership coach and thinker, partnering with global leaders throughout their career and leadership cycle. Welcome to today's show. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, absolutely. We're going to have a lot of fun. So let's uh, set it up for the reader. In brief, what's this book about, including its all-intriguing title? (laughs) Elephants Before Unicorns, Emotionally Intelligent HR Strategies to Save Your Company is all about the elephants in the room that nobody discusses within an organization when it comes to hiring people, managing people, leading people, and then ultimately uh, ensuring that they're able to stay for the long term. Okay. Makes sense to me. I was amazed when I joined the business space how little emotions were discussed. And obviously, at the same time, they were driving so much of the behavior. Mm. Uh, Certainly, your specialty is important to me. I'm thinking about the jobless claims in America, which have now topped Mm. 40 million. So uh, whether it's at the executive level or elsewhere, there's going to be a lot of people trying to understand where they're going to take their career next and hopefully finding themselves in a suitable work environment. Mm. Just for a little bit, let's let's play a little bit of role-playing game. Mm. Uh, for you, let's just imagine for a moment that you were actually applying to be the co-host of this podcast. What would the ideal interview look like for you? Oh, how fun. So if I was applying to be your co-host, the ideal interview, it would be that I will have researched you beforehand understood your podcast inside and out, had a view on where it could go or some kind of real connection and real deep connection on on how you're doing it. And then I would reach out to you and say, I really like your podcast. I'd really like to be your co-host for this. This is what I can bring. This is what I can do. Uh, and then the interview would, would basically happen. It would be as casual as possible to en- enable every party to really communicate authentically. And there's a real kind of, there's a lot of negativity about the phrase authentically because people think, you know, if they bring, if, if, if they're authentic, then they're going to be oversharing with things or whatever the, whatever the situation is. But it's really about being able to have those very frank conversations about where you see the future being for a particular project. So let's call your podcast a project. And if, if I was to apply for your um uh, for that role, that fictitious role, what I would do is is uh, when when preparing for it is really understanding what is where what the opportunities are, and then to try and have a dialogue and and to collaborate in the interview, versus a case of 
you asking me lots of standard questions and it feeling quite jilted. And, you know, it would be about having a real genuine conversation to see whether or not values, uh, aspirations, and various other aspects align. I, I love that answer. I, I think that, yes, way too many of the interviews are indeed very canned and they trot through the questions mm. and the interviewers are half bored. I can remember once being interviewed <laughs> for a job and there was four people interviewing me and honestly, God, halfway through, they fell into a spat because they couldn't agree on who I was going to report to. It was all a turf battle going on. And I that went, I don't think, fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I want to be in the middle of this tussle. It looks more like a scrum than a job that I was being interviewed for. <laughs> Um, let's imagine, uh, you had a question for me also, you wanted to make sure that you were going to be comfortable in this role, not just that you were understanding what the opportunity was. What might be a key question that you might come back with? Mm. Well, if I wanted to find out whether or not we were compatible, I would ask you questions like, what, 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 who was your favorite colleague or who was your favorite direct report? Um, who for this particular role, I would say, who's your favorite uh, co-host, co-anchor that you really enjoy uh, listening to? What are the dynamics that you really appreciate? Uh, what what kind of, how, how do you see the podcast evolving? How do you see uh, things going? And then I would ask, you know, on your worst day, uh, how would you want me to handle you? <laughs> 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 and that's quite a cheeky question because a lot of people will be like, "Well, I don't have a work, uh, you know, a, uh, the, my worst day." And the reality is, is that we all have our worst days. And if anyone can speak candidly about that, and I don't know too many people that would use that question in an interview, but if people are able to speak candidly about what their worst day looks like, what their best day looks like, and how they're able to manage that. Uh, then you're looking at the beginnings of a of of a of a good relationship. Perfect. Well, there's so many things I like in this book because it really tries to push back against the orthodoxy that's kind of solidified in the space you know, around HR and mm -hmm. so many aspects of it. One of the is the boarding process you actually have or the onboarding process mm -hmm. for a new employee. In your case, often it's an executive that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned. Uh, Several members, I think it was actually four people, would do a review of the new person's role not long after joining. Uh, there was also a 100-day review. Mm. Uh, I like both of those. They've never happened in any job I've ever become part <laughs> of. Um, I'm wondering if there's any other practices you wanted to mention there, and then maybe a story of how this has really made a difference in at least one instance that you know mm. of. So just to clarify for the listeners, uh, the the program that we have with the 100 Days Coaching is was born from me joining organizations in the 90s because I'm, I'm, I'm a mature woman. And back in the 90s, I was working for Sony and uh, Virgin and Nokia and uh, agencies and various roles whereby I was really focusing on brand marketing and public relations and so on. And I found every single time I joined these companies, there was no there was no real plan for integration. It was really a case of, oh, this person does that, hi, and you know that was pretty much it. Yep. And I really felt that that whole process was wrong, wrong, wrong. And it it and even if you receive a, a giant old telephone book of uh, of of an onboarding uh, package, you've still got to wade through that, and that's not very human. 
these days a lot of lot of individuals are sitting or not sitting around what am I about to say these days people are very focused on providing videos and what have you which is incredibly important even even now even more so I think uh, due to COVID times uh, but the the whole purpose was was that in the first week the first week you have to have a meeting with all of the stakeholders and it really needs to be driven by somebody that is unemotionally attached to to the outcome, uh, to the process, to the people, uh, because what invariably happens is that you have biases and you you want to be able to push things through in a particular way. But that that day four meeting that I have, which is a stakeholder meeting with the new hire, is driven to create the the environment of where are we? How have we done? What have you learned so far? What What are the opportunities? What are the challenges? And uh, what are the goals for 30, 60, 90 days? And you're really looking for lots of different lenses of on, and perspectives of people's concern, concerns uh, and what they expect out of this new hire and what the protocols can be and what the meeting structures can be and things like that, which is just a really great grounding exercise. And not enough people do that. And I have to say, when we do this with uh, individuals and their and their their new organization the organization and the new hire really appreciate it because for the first time they have some form of clarity now remember clarity doesn't last forever things change very rapidly sure. <laughs> so then that individual will have uh that that stakeholder session for an hour and a half uh to really get a good understanding of of what what the role is about, what the expectations are, and what the challenges are. You know, it might be you're not going to get anything out of payroll. The payroll are just really terrible at this. How are we going to how are we going to fix it? We, this is something that needs to be fixed for whatever reason. So you've got the four, four days. Uh, you've got that very important meeting, which puts a stake in the ground on exactly where the the opportunities lie. Then moving on from that, that they receive coaching. Every single week, this new hire receives coaching every week, which is obviously confidential because I'm an ICF accredited coach at PCC level. And what happens from that particular point is that every single week they're, they're coached. They also go through, through an EQ assessment, which accelerates and expedites the actual um, integration and understanding of that person six months faster than any other uh, program that I've I've used or any other tool that I've used, simply because, as you said earlier, you're talking about emotions. What emotions are likely to get you into trouble? Because whatever emotions got you into trouble potentially with your previous employers or your or, or what, ha, what you experienced is going to be showing up again in some way because you bring your baggage with you. I mean, it's, it's very easy to do that. Uh, then after that, you then have another 50-day um, kickoff meeting with everybody. And then at the end, there's a 360. And the 360 is really important uh, for obvious reasons. You want the, the new hire that has just joined, uh, does, often they don't get to hear how well they're doing or how not so well they're doing. Uh, much, much later on when, let's say, the rot starts in for whatever whatever reason on whichever side. And it provides a really good launching point for the individual and for all of the stakeholders, again, to be able to think about the strategy of the individual and the organization and how that all ties in, because usually everything is happening in different directions and everybody gets confused and super duper stressed. So that's that's the program. And it's a 100-day it's a program. There is a, a person 
Uh, your listeners may know of this person. His name is Michael Watkins. He created this the book called The First 90 Days, and he has a program. It isn't connected to that particular program. It's a very different uh, system. This is more about a coaching kind of process rather than being uh, it, it very specific um, about those uh, organizational challenges or anything like that. Uh, and it and and it's it's uh, really aimed for the individual, not not necessarily for the organization, but of course the organization benefits quite significantly from it. Yeah, no, I, I really like this kind of approach. I mean, when I joined corporate life, I remember I had a job description. I show up the first day. Uh, <laughs> they decided to assign me four direct reports, which utterly changes my job description. <laughs> uh, I come to realize that two people who will, will be my colleagues who were previously in the position, uh, one was essentially booted from it. He's my enemy uh, you know, from the get-go, not because of anything I did or who I am, just because he was disgraced in the job. And oh, uh, so if I'm not disgraced, then I'm better than he is, and he hates it's my family. Very hard. It's complicated. Yeah, lot, lots of fun stuff. So speaking of the rot setting in, mm-hmm. uh, there's a pretty stunning statistic, if I remember this correctly, that CEOs, the turnover rate for CEOs in their first 18 months in the job is 50%. If I heard that correctly, my basic question is, why? That is a <laughs> huge number. It's a really great question. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to answer it in a satisfactory manner. I think it's because there are usually so many moving parts associated with that. And let's take the most emotional angle, if we could. Let's take the most <laughs> emotional a- angle. Lack of trust, usually, for the new leader. Lack of engagement in what the vision is for, with the CEO. And, and a, a, a lack of a genuine understanding about where the CEO wants to take the organization forward. So if you look at that great big, um, let's call it chasm of understanding, you're in a situation whereby if you're unable to to move your your people forward, your CEO is, is there to really make some significant changes very, very quickly. And that CEO is going to gather uh, the followers that are going to make that happen in a in a very in a very uh, fast and productive way. Uh, so it's all about relationships. It's about relationships. It's about leadership. It's about uh, communication, and it, the, the underlying aspect is trust. Okay, so it's not the uh, intellect necessarily. It's not the energy level. It's really their ability to uh, foster rapport, loyalty get emotional momentum within mm-hmm. the organization. Yeah, but I would say on, on what you just said there, uh, that, that, that everything is emotionally connected to that. So if, if you do have a CEO that maybe doesn't have the same dynama- dynamism or, um, or, or isn't regarded as the same form of charismatic leader as the previous uh, CEO that left to go and work for a, for a more successful company, you've got that perspective that needs to be turned around. And once you realize that that is actually a challenge for the organization because people have a certain expectation of what that person should be, that then is your elephant that needs to be sorted out. And that's where you need to be able to help control. I'm going to kind of put my PR hat on, which is you almost have to limit the amount of damage that those expectations might cause by being able to create a very, very clear 
um, clear, ha- have a very clear communication program within the organization that, so that people buy into this new vision that the CEO will naturally have. Um, and also what happens as well is that often people think that when a new CEO comes along, they're going to change the environment so quickly. So here, let's talk about emotions and fear. If people are fearful of their jobs or their department, uh, all of a sudden you're going to have rival conversations and behaviors uh, t- taking take t- taking uh, the the center stage which of course is is not the point yeah no ch- change involves the risk of something changing that I don't want to have change mm-hmm. or changing a direction I don't wish for so fear is means basically the the new CEO has been is the embodiment of danger yeah and uh, be, it, yeah. you know through those people. Yeah, it's either excitement or danger, and I, either way, there's, there's there's a whole bunch of emotions associated with 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 those, and the and the behaviors follow suit. Okay, let's drop down a level, maybe below the CEO, but still an executive, or at least maybe a, a senior manager, a VP, or something. Um, when it comes time for the the dreaded feedback, it's hard to take feedback. It's sometimes even harder to give it. Mm. And you mentioned the book that there's this false dichotomy between the pushover boss who makes the review, you know, essentially a nothing burger, or mm. or the bully boss. And there has to be, of course, a better third option. But if we just kind of go through this, the pushover bo- boss, the bully boss, the better option. When we get to that review, what are the emotions involved? We just mentioned fear, uh, but obviously we got anger and disgust and contempt and happiness, uh, sadness. Where else can we take this conversation in terms of that feedback session and the nature of the boss? Mm. So the 360 that I produce is completely different to the way that uh, the way that you're describing. So in this in this in this instance, I would be the person that speaks to all of the different stakeholders that have been included as as, as part of the reference, uh, or they're, they're being used for the references for the three sixties. They're the participants. Let's say I I speak to six different people of of various levels. I will ask them a series of questions and get various informa- various points of information, and then identify the themes which enable. Uh, me to be able to, when I'm presenting the, the, the feedback or the 360, it's done verbally. And there's a very clever way forward on this that I learned right back at executive coaching school, <laughs> which, has, sure. which is absolutely fantastic, which is that you ask the person first what they think they achieved or what they want to, what they want to achieve in the next, in the next six months or ha- what, what they are most proud of what attributes they have that need to be uh, that that are well respected and much needed and then uh the next question would be along the lines of uh how how do you think you need to develop uh what what area do you need to work on so when you have when you ask the, those questions first you've already managed to get them to think very either creatively or intelligently to step into that reality of what, what what is it that they're good at? What have they done? What have they achieved in the past 100 days? What do they need to achieve in, in the next while? And then once I'm able to provide the feedback from the other people, they're able to, the respondents, I'm then able to, they, the, the, the person that's, that's being coached at that moment is able to see where the gap is or no gap whatsoever. So that's where they can then determine how they can evolve rather than just receiving a piece of paper 
that says uh, that maybe has five words there. You know. Sure. <laughs> so, so it, yes. So it so it's a incremental conversation, and yes. it, it involves having already gathered input from other yes. parties. Yes. Okay. Exactly. And- I remember once being in a 360, and this is all that it involved. Uh, our boss sat down with his five direct reports, of whom I was one, and said, uh, so I need to do the 360. Does anyone have any feedback for me, anything I should do better? And none of us dared say anything. <laughs> and about, I, I think, I'm not kidding you. I think in four minutes, the conversation was over. It was like, where should we go for lunch today? Ah, uh, yes. And some yeah. people would have been very, very scared to have spoken out. So there's a great book uh, from Kim Scott. It's called Radical Candor. And, and there's other books as well about difficult conversations. And they're really paramount because when you realize that there is actually a very helpful format that you can use you can you can develop a, a your credibility and your ability to influence very very quickly and then people will say oh i always love how you can be so frank uh, and 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 provide a solutions oriented approach to to your responses and it's and when you get that when when you have that happening it becomes second nature and there's no other way okay um, so I might have misunderstood the situation in that the feedback is, you know, for the executive and to know where they're going and mm. with the team. But let's let's just go to a more traditional mm. thing, if I could, for a moment, even if it's outside of what you normally do here with your company, which is so I, I do have a boss and I'm just maybe another person in the department. And I can see that my boss is a bit of a pushover in terms of how they do the annual reviews and then they just give out a, a pay increase and it's equal for everybody. Nice. I mean. What does that, you know, and, and maybe it's really small and you're like, well, I think I worked harder and was better or whatever. But when you've got a boss and you're just observing what kind of boss you have, and you have the pushover boss or the bully boss or some third, mm. hopefully better option than those two. What do you think is the dynamic that's driving emotionally the pushover boss versus the bully versus the third kind of boss that's mm. unidentified so far? Yeah, the, the pushover boss is avoiding uh, conflict. And just trying to make it as easy as possible. But at the same time, if you've got your star performers and they're saying, hold on a second, why am I getting the the average um, pay increase when I – uh, when I've I've performed more than this person next to me? That, 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 can be, that can create a huge issue. And that is – other than someone saying, well, this person is spineless, they're going to lose a lot of respect for that particular person. So this is where – uh, the individual needs to be able to recognize certain achievements and accomplishments from people who have really pushed, put themselves out there. And you have the opportunity to be able to go and say, can I have a one-to-one with you? I'd really appreciate it if we could have a conversation uh, about my performance. Uh, these are the things that I've I've worked on uh, and I've pr- made millions and millions and millions of dollars for you uh, where, where uh, you know, I'm really looking for a, a greater recognition. And when that happens, you know, you then leave it with them. You just leave it with them. You don't need to get into an argument because you are just presenting that information to them. And then they can go off and do something. But you should say, you know, when, when should we have another conversation about this and uh, try and look to do something in the next two or three weeks? Um, I, I, I like that because I think that the pushover boss who's given to fear and doesn't want to have the confrontation uh-huh. then creates in this scenario you just described, I think a real risk that the worker is going to come away, or the employee, the subordinate is going to come away with contempt. Uh, Mm -hmm. because they lose their respect for that person. And I know from my studies that, uh, and other studies I've read, contempt is so corrosive to a relationship. It's very hard to come come back from. So, okay, so that's the push. Yeah, that's the pushover. How about the the bully boss? What's going on there? Bully is high anxiety. 
uh, has an awful lot of anxiety is uh, has experienced that behavior to themselves. Uh, they experience that behavior of being bullied uh, in previous machinations of their lives. Uh, maybe that was the only way that they, they had learned that they're able to get results. And they they need some guidance on on ha- how they can develop and how they can improve. And the, the, the bully boss is, is typically the, the, the person that HR or their superior will want to try and have sorted out. And often that's just a little bit too late because they've already created that uh, situation. They're probably going to feel shame uh, or they're going to just not feel any shame whatsoever and say, well, you know, I, I don't respect this organization. This is how I get business done, so on and so on and so on. So it, it, it's it, when you have a bully boss, there are you, you've got to tread carefully to ensure that if you think that this person is an incredibly high performer and they're doing fantastic work, are they able to change? Can they see new ways to work and to have those conversations with them directly so that they know uh, what, what it is and then next additional steps can can be made? Okay. Yeah. No, I, you know, when I think of a bully boss, I guess the first place I default to is anger. But of course, uh, anxiety is often covered by the bluster of being anger. Because mm-hmm. uh, angry is about wanting to set boundaries, to protect your boundaries and your turf and your ego. And all of that, uh, the shame aspect is also really interesting as to mm. what that does for the boss who flames out one day and then has to still come back in the next day and lead people. Mm-hmm. It, what's the third better option? And then surely one exists between pushover and bully. <laughs> um, well, of course, I'm going to call it the emotionally intelligent pe- people leader. Uh, uh, yeah. and, and that requires the person to really understand that people are the most important uh, part of an organization, which I, I know is is, uh, is 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 very challenging right now in the time of COVID, because so many interactions just don't happen anymore. The casual uh, sense of le- learning or finding out what's happening through with an organization through the power of osmosis, because you're just hearing and listening, isn't happening anymore. So it's 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 a very very difficult time for remote workers to really feel. Uh, connected to their people, which means you have to try even harder. You've really got to get a sense and definitely get a coach. Uh, I was coaching somebody uh, just last week, a week before actually, and I said to them, mm, have you checked out the, the morale of, of your team? They have a team of 100. And they said, oh, they're fine. You know, we, 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 <laughs> everybody's got what they want. And a, a week and a half later two people resigned and i'm like mm, no 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 this is this is a major earthquake people have resigned they're moving on to other roles um and uh you know being and they're very successful with that because clearly there are certain aspects of the business and the and the organization and the way that the way they're operating uh is is just not meeting their satisfaction Sure. I mean, what are the odds that 100 people are fine, especially when the world's going through a tsunami <laughs> of, of crises? That seems uh, like denial, denial, denial. Well, um, or, or not even being aware of it because they're, they're just so focused on different aspects. So when you look at the EQ, um, uh, so I use the, the, the tool, the EQI 2.0, which is, uh, which is the Reuven Baron uh, process that was uh, initiated at around about the same time that Daniel Goleman uh, wrote his book in, back in the early 90s. And um, 
the interesting thing about that is that when you look at human nature, it's it's there are all of these different components that need to work at the same time. And when you've got this, people are feeling that they're just not being listened to or heard or understood. Um, they're they're, they're, they're going to react. Um, you know, it's just like an experiment with, with uh, li- li- lively chemicals. You're going to get some pretty interesting reactions. Yeah, no. I, well, makes me think of pain, which makes me think of sadness and a sense of isolation and perhaps helplessness, uh, none of which is a good cycle. This kind of feeds pretty naturally into my next place I wanted to go, which was <laughs> diversity, because mm-hmm. we've got obviously the Black Lives Matter yes. protests. We have the recent U.S. Supreme Court ruling on LGBTQ mm-hmm. Uh, We have the DACA ruling. And yet I can think back to just a few years ago, I was asked to speak on diversity and emotions uh, for a Silicon Valley company. Everybody was invited. The intention, quite honestly, was to get the white senior leadership to come. Not a single person attended. Uh, The upside of that was that uh, people were quite honest about the sense that they were, they'd been hired in, but they were not included Mm. in the organization as far as they were concerned. And I could not believe uh, how authentic and honest people were. The the amount of pain, psychic mm. pain that was in that meeting uh, was phenomenal, more so than any other corporate event I've ever done. Oh, I'm so sorry so, to hear that. Yeah, no, it was it was it really shook me, um, and I really felt for the people because they were they were truly distressed, and there was a lot of people who came to the event. What are the emotional barriers to creating a, a safer, more supportive environment, um, and and how do you overcome them? I mean, surely this must come up in your work. Mm. It does and it doesn't. Uh, how how do I I so in terms of what is happening with uh, Black Lives Matter now, for example, and and LGBTQ, the rate of change is not. It, it can't. It, it's it's almost incomprehensible to. The majority of people that are just unable to empathize with the challenges that these people face. So it's absolutely imperative that organizations, and I write about this in my book, that organizations really do become more sensitive about different people because from a society from a society's perspective we are advancing much faster than most corporations do unless you're Microsoft or LinkedIn or any of these organizations that you know have a giant marketing workforce to be able to make sure that they're able to uh, ensure that their external employer brand looks good you've still got to ensure that your internal work and your communications are absolutely authentic um, just at around about the time that the Black Lives Matters movement was uh, brought back very abruptly to life a couple of weeks ago, uh, people just weren't thinking about it in those terms. And I think we've now got to a point where, well, I'm glad to say we're now at the point where it's become a norm that if you do not understand what Black Lives Matters mean, then you're not part of the solution moving forward. Um, so 
really, and I'm pretty sure I'm not answering your question properly. <laughs> Don't worry about it. We're, we're covering valuable ground all the same. <laughs> it's it's a really big topic, and it's it's like tr- it tr- try, trying to trying to approach this in the, in the right way is, is is delicate. So prior to COVID, Black Lives Matters and LGBTQ would have just been a, a, a box to be ticked by the vast majority of the organisations. So just at around about that time, I think somebody from Facebook, um, uh, a, a leader, I won't say what their sexuality is or what, what color they were, but they had distinct issues with uh, the way that Facebook was running uh, their internal uh, operations and how they treated certain people. And they resigned and they advertised it or they, they stated it very, very uh, clearly in, uh, in, in a link on a LinkedIn post. It's like, I have quit. I do not believe in Facebook's uh, internal uh, racial, racial equity plans internally. And that was that was a really big move. Uh, I'm, I have no idea where this person is now or how they're moving things forward or anything like that. But what that does tell us is that organizations need to integrate people, every person, equally in however that individual needs to, wants to be recognized. Uh, and that's, that's absolutely, absolutely important. We're not in the 1970s anymore. And, and yet, in some ways, we we are sadly. I, because I was looking at the statistic, I think it's in your book as well. But almost all, if you take the Fortune 500, almost every single person, there's almost no exceptions, are still white males. I don't yes. know whether they're they're homo, heterosexual or homosexual, mm-hmm. for instance. There are, you know, I'm sure some of each. But generally speaking, it's a pretty similar picture to what it's been for a very, very long time. A very long time, and I just find it so peculiar. Um, I was raised in Singapore uh, when I was very young, and um, I think I was the only white person in the, in the school. Oh, sorry, in my class. So I grew up in a very mixed, mi- mixed cultures, mixed race. You know, everybody ate different food. It was just absolutely fantastic. So when I went back to the UK and to see the racism in in the in a predominantly white country, I was just absolutely mortified. It's like, why why is this happening? So for me, it's it's like you know, treat treat others how you would want to be treated. Uh, but for for many, there are some really deep down systemic uh, issues that just just make it really hard for people to understand. Um, so now is the time to learn, in my opinion. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, I think a lot of this gets to be a matter of, of comfort level. I mean, there could be much deeper, uglier sentiments involved, but I'm going to try to take it on the on the more banal level of comfort mm-hmm. uh, because there was I was watching an interview just the other night with the author of White Fragility, and she said, well, the question you can ask yourself if you are white is what does it mean to be white, mm-hmm. i.e. what privileges, what assumptions nice. um, are built into that, and then that might start leading you to the other questions in turn. Oh, that um, is genius. That is genius. What what does it mean for you to be white? Uh, what privileges do you have that uh yeah, what privileges do you have? And then just let it sit with them. That is the best, best possible way. I mean, Very to good. me it was just, it once just small little thing that spoke volumes is when I first heard, you know, the term, you know, driving while black. Mm. And then you start to take the implications of that. And I remember living in New Jersey, and I used to go up Route 1 sometimes from Princeton back to my place. Mm. And uh, looking back on it now, yes, 
uh, so many of the motors who were stopped supposedly for speeding or whatever were African-American to a, you know, proportion that was way out of line with, with uh, the number of African-Americans who were residents of the state of New Jersey. And I noticed it and I didn't notice it. And, you know, later on when I first heard that term, that was one of many things that, that played in my head. Anyway, I'm going to move on because we're going to run out of time here at some point. There was at least two more things I wanted to get to. Um, one was employee disengagement. And I'm interested in that because when you are engaged, you're also emotionally engaged. Mm. And the words motivation and emotion have the same root word in Latin, to move, to make something happen. So to lose employee engagement is to lose productivity, mm -hmm. but it's also to lose almost surely a happy workplace. So what have you found in your, your experiences, your thinking, your reading? Uh, what can help on the employee engagement front to avoid disengagement? Mm. So I, I laid this out in my book, and this isn't a, a promotion or anything like that, but it's, it's, to me, it's a very simple process that very, very few companies do. And that is to uh, have one-to-ones on a regular basis. And the, 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 the first one to have is uh, to ask a series of questions about what they think they bring to the role, the organization, the team, the project. And I've got all of the questions. I think there's about 20 plus questions in, in my book. And it's really for them to understand, again, just like your, your, your question about whiteness, it's for them to identify where they are uh, and how and, and what they want to do to move themselves forward and what they want to do and to be a part of within the organization. So if you don't ask those questions, people are just clocking in and clocking out, and uh, they're not going to feel particularly engaged if they have not had their opinions asked and or you know and, and their feelings and we're, we're, how they are emotionally connected to the the their role and and the, the the role with others and and how they're able to move the company forward everybody wants to feel worthwhile that they're doing something big otherwise what's the point and that they oh, have they have, they have yeah. their uh, that they have their uh you know, their, their time is invested in something that has something positive. We all want to do something for the greater good, uh, even if you, you don't necessarily, you may not be able to articulate it. So that that meeting with your uh, manager is going to be really important so that you aren't just down at the pub or the coffee shop complaining and then looking for another job. It's really a case of having that deep understanding and then being able to ask the, those questions as well of, of your boss so that you can understand what's important to them, what's important for the company, what needs to what needs to move forward. And again, it needs to be done in a way whereby you can trust that person to be truthful, honest, collaborative, supportive, really listening and isn't just rail, trying to railroad you into, you know, doing something that you don't want to do and, and manipulating you in that way. So that what I would say is the, is the first, first point. And then second, second point is to really ensure that everybody understands how the mission of the organization and the individuals and the product, et cetera, are all aligned. Uh, once people know that, it's like, you know, they, and, and they find their why to use a Simon Sinek saying, they're able to really understand uh, how they're connected and be satisfied. Okay. No, I love that answer. I mean, what I'm hearing is trust is still the emotion of business. Uh, showing respect matters that I'm more than just a pair of hands or someone mm -hmm. clicking away at yeah. the, 
at the computer, um, you know, purpose. Mm -hmm. So one more thing I wanted to go to, you know, we have a workforce where thanks in part to economic travails, people are staying in the workforce longer or coming back into the workforce after retirement, perhaps even. So we've now got a workforce that is stretching, you know, three, four generations and those generations can have different value systems, Mm -hmm. different frames of reference, quite obviously, but it also means you're going to have something that's not what you once had, which was almost always the boss was older, mm-hmm. maybe even the oldest person in the department, just possibly. Mm-hmm. Now it could very well be, you know, 40s, 50s, 60, even 70 year olds, I suppose, now and in the future who are working for, say, a 28 year old. How does that work? How is that going to work? What have you seen that, that makes that dynamic successful? Again, an emotionally intelligent leader that understands the different the, the, the different gaps and will patiently, supportively uh, communicate effectively uh, and collaboratively to ensure that that there, there's there's there is understanding and everybody's moving in the right direction. Often, the older generation and I just can't believe I'm saying older generation because I'm probably the generation that I, I was in when I was the equivalent of a millennial <laughs> back in the nineties. <laughs> and, uh, there were just every generation, as you said, has, uh, they, they will have different values. They'll want to see things done in a different way. Um, and that can be really hard to ta- for most people to tackle. Uh, but if there is an understanding that everybody is, on the same page, they're moving forward in the right way. They can understand that the 60-year-old that has returned to work that is working on a particular project is only able to, to work four hours a day or whatever it is and, and can only deliver that. Then, you know, the leader understands what value that person is bringing and is able to be respectful to that person rather than whatever emotions they might have le- leak out and then they're not going to feel engaged. So is it is it possible maybe uh, if there's teams that they should be very intergenerational on purpose among the other variables? Is it uh, roundtables at times within a company? A lot of things we've talked about is kind of like one-to-one, off-the-record yes. conversations. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering ways in which this sense of community but mutual cross-understandings can percolate. Yeah. the I, I would definitely encourage vision meetings on a regular basis with the team. Uh, oh, to okay. understand where everyone's going, for everybody to be able to air the issues in a very candid way uh, on what is impacting their ability to be successful or what future they hope. If you have those meetings on a semi-regular basis, people will then feel like they're unburdened because whatever millions of ideas that are going through their their mind is is able to to be aired and then that grievance or that issue or that big idea is out on the table and you're then able to move forward from that. So yes, the one-to-ones are very important, but also the, the group me- meetings that I host as well for the for the leaders, for the entire stakeholder group. So uh, alignment and a future vision can be created for so everybody's on the same page because that's that's the most important thing. Everybody needs to be on the same page so everybody can can work on on their on what they bring. Sure. Makes sense to me. So I would say our time's about up, sadly enough. I think I could talk for another hour happily (laughs) on this topic. Uh, It's really just so important. I remember when I was in corporate life, I was in charge at one point of an annual report. That was for the shareholders. I wanted to create one for the employees, but I couldn't get buy-in from senior management. They didn't want to waste money Yeah, on an employee annual report. So it went by the wayside. Anyway, for everybody, this has been uh, my guest, Carolyn Stokes, the author of Elephants Before Unicorns. This has been episode number nine. 
Do You Want to Be an Ostrich? To check out other episodes or my books or other activities, including my appearances on other people's podcasts, feel free to visit my company's website at the obligatory three W's, sensorylogic.com. If you've got a follow-up question for Carolyn, including, you know, the question we didn't get around to, do you want to be an ostrich? Uh, you can send me an email at dhill at sensorylogic.com. Um, if you've enjoyed the show, you can, uh, by all means, uh, give it a rating, a review, anything like that can help. Uh, and then I like to close each show with a epigram that I think is apropos to our subject matter for the day. So in honor of uh, the British female guest I have, I'm going to take J.K. Rowling, who said, destiny is a name often given in retrospect to choices that had dramatic consequences. Mm. Until next time, be kind and by all means, stay safe. Mm.